We've all been in that situation, probably most of us at least by now, where you get a text message and you don't have them saved as, your, as, a, as a contact. And um, there can be this embarrassing exchange where you're trying to figure out who this is. And sometimes you come right out and ask it, and other times you're afraid to come right out and ask it. Uh, my birthday this year, in the middle of summer, I got a text message, a very, um, a very kind uh, and affirming text message from somebody that I didn't have saved in my contacts. And I was a little bit embarrassed to ask them because the, the level of intimacy they were reflecting in this, in this text message. And so um, I just kind of went along with it. And that was all good and well until I mistakenly texted them, meaning to text somebody else, something that um, was not sinful but quite embarrassing and inappropriate, anxious and worrying, like, who is this person? I have no idea who I just texted. And uh, eventually, it, it literally took months for me to figure out who it was. And I would, I would share the message uh, with you, but it's it probably not appropriate in this context. Again, it wasn't <laughs> sinful. But you would have to have a close relationship with me to see the humor in it, which is who the person I intended to send it to. It was actually supposed to go to my stepson, and it went to a stranger. So it was interesting. <laughs> so sometimes we, and there's a pop, you know, pop culture has made this popular. New phone, who it is, is sort of this catchphrase that we say. But it's this idea of we're getting messages, but we don't know who the information is coming from. Such is the situation in John chapter 1. There's this message coming from this guy, John the Baptist. And the religious people of the day don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. They're like, who's this message coming from? And so they go to him. And they ask him the question. And they, they're, they're, they're looking for, for answers of who has sent him and by what authority he is speaking. In all of this, in the context, if you were here last week, um, John's gospel is an attempt to show us who Jesus is. That's his point. And his point, he tells us explicitly in John chapter 20, verse 31, that he's come to this conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You could sum up the entire book of the entire gospel of John with John chapter 21 Verse 30, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, I wrote that you would believe this and that by believing this, you would have life in his name. But he, he, spent, he takes 21 chapters to say that. And what I'm convinced John is doing is that he's showing his work. Do we have any elementary age teachers in here? I know we have, okay, we have a couple, right? If you teach math at an at a, uh, elementary grade level, there's this, thing that has to happen between you and the students where you ask them questions. I remember this well from elementary school. You would be presented a math problem and the teacher would be like, no, I want you to show me your, know the answer. Show me the steps that you took. I remember hating that as a kid. I'm like, but I know the answer. But I came to realize eventually that what they were doing was they were preparing me to be able to do more difficult problems by understanding the steps that needed to be taken in order to come to the proper conclusion to get the right answer. So John has the answer. He knows who Jesus is. What he's doing in his gospels, he's showing us his work. He wants us to see the steps. He wants us to see through a series of witnesses who Jesus is. 
He wants us to see through a series of signs and miracles who Jesus is. So he calls his first witness to the stand. His first witness is John the Baptist. Now remember, I reminded us earlier in the series that John, the writer of the gospel, sometimes called John the Evangelist, and John the Baptist are two different Johns. Don't get them confused. Normally, in the book of John, when you see the name John, it's talking about John the Baptist. So that's who we're talking about here, John the Baptist. Who is John? That's the first question I want to answer. Verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. There are three possible answers that everybody has in mind when they ask him this question. He starts with the first. It says in in verse 20, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. That's where he starts. Before they even ask him, are you the Messiah? He knows this is the question on their mind. The Messiah is the one who has prophesied throughout the Old Testament that God would send to save his people. He was the coming Savior. And for, hundred, for really for thousands of years, but over the last couple of hundred, this great longing to see God send the Messiah, the Savior, And so it wasn't unusual that when somebody came on the scene who was new and seemed to, to, um, let's say, have gifting or authority or get people's attention, that people might start to wonder, could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? Is this the one? And so here's John, John the Baptist. Now, we're not told a whole lot about his ministry in this particular passage, but we know from other places in the other Gospels that The people were really drawn to John. He was going out, he was preaching this message of repent and prepare for the kingdom of heaven to come. And that made people, specifically the religious leaders, start to think, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's supposed to come? Let's send some people to find out. And so they send these folks. They ask John, who are you? He says, I'm not the Messiah. That's the first one they're trying to cross off the list. Said, what then? They asked him, are you Elijah? He says, I am not, okay? They're expecting the Messiah. They're also expecting Elijah because there are some Old Testament prophecies that say that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would come. Now, you have to know from the Old Testament that Elijah does not die. According to Old Testament history, that Elijah is simply taken up into heaven. And so there's this expectation that one day Elijah is gonna come back, and indeed, that's true. He says, I'm not Elijah, though. Are you the prophet? This is another sort of eschatological figure that they expected to come based on Old Testament prophecy, someone that they simply refer to as the prophet. These are three different distinct people that the Jewish people are looking for and waiting to see them come into the world. He says, not any of those. Who are you then? I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. So he quotes Isaiah 
Who is he? This is the first thing you see to fill out on your handout. The one sent to announce the coming Messiah. That's who he is. Who's John? Created, uh, prophesied figures. The Messiah, Elijah, the prophet. If he's none of those, who is he? He says, Isaiah prophesied about me. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he's a forerunner to the Messiah. He's sent to prepare the people. He's sent to let them know that the Messiah is coming, but not just to let them know, but to prepare him. So he's telling Israel, he's coming. Get ready, he's coming. Be prepared, he's coming. This is what he's telling Israel. So he's preaching and people are coming to him. He's even baptizing them. And that's the next question that they ask. And I want to answer that question. That's question number two. One is who is John? The second question is why does he baptize? It says in verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? He says in verse 26, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Why does he baptize? He baptizes, this is important, understand this about John the Baptist's ministry. He baptizes to call people to repent and to prepare their hearts for what was to come calls them to repentance. To repent means to turn, right? We understand that. If, if you're a Christian, if you've been around the church, you understand repent means to turn. It means to turn from something to something. And, and, and spiritually speaking, it means to turn from sin to God. There's, there's implied in repentance that there's sorrow and lament over our sin, that there's a desire for forgiveness. It's, it's a forsaking of one way in order to go in another way. Repent and prepare your hearts for what is to come. Now, he does, John's an interesting character. He does this in a unique way. He, first of all, he lives out in the wilderness, which isn't totally uncommon. I mean, I mean out on their own and, and live a um, thousand, a little bit secluded. But you know, John's out there in the wilderness. Now, you've got to understand, 2,000 years ago, the wilderness was a far more difficult place to live. You just didn't have a lot of the amenities that we have today. And so he, he's, he's kind of painted as this guy that just sort of wanders around preaching this message of repentance. Very prophetic. That's, a, that's, that's the way Israel was used to coming into contact with their prophets. In fact, he dressed differently. He dressed in camel's hair, clothes made out of camel's hair. I have... I've only been around a couple of camels in my life. I have no idea what clothes made out of their hair is like, but it can't be all that fancy or comfortable. So he's dressed in camel's hair, and he eats a strange diet. He eats locusts and honey. That's absolutely disgusting. (laughs) At least he, I don't know if he ate them together. I hope that he dipped the locusts in honey. Or did he just eat a plate of locusts and then for a snack had, I don't know. It's disgusting. But it's all of this to say this guy's unique and he has everybody's attention. 
The nation of Israel is paying attention to this guy. The religious leaders and the elite among them want to know who this guy is. God is getting the people's attention. And he's doing it in dramatic fashion. So he goes around, he's preaching this message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Repent, prepare yourself. Something is about to happen. They say he was baptizing. He's known as John the Baptist because he baptized people, which we don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some know more than me. We don't know a ton about like what that meant or uh, who did that and didn't do that at the time. I've always thought that was kind of interesting. But one thing is that John ties baptism to repentance. And then, the, and, then, and then Jesus sort of follows up on this by offering baptism in the Holy Spirit and the apostle Jesus to this idea of salvation. And so I don't think the idea of baptism is complete when John is doing it, but he's at least introducing us to the idea that baptism and repentance go together. It's a way of making a statement. It's a way of saying, I, I'm ready to do things differently now. And so he's calling people to be baptized in the Jordan River. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Jordan River, it's, it's actually what we would call, well, I was going to say a creek because I say creek. It's what we would call a crick. The Jordan River is not much of a river. And you can go there today, it's still, it's still flowing, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, no, uh, it's no wider from shore to shore than from the front and the back of this room. It's, it's, it's basically a creek is what it is. And he's baptizing people there. And at one point, something really important happens. Jesus himself comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And this becomes the most significant event of John the Baptist's life. Is that he baptized, and he, in fact, he argues with Jesus, you don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, no, we're going to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's going to do everything required to completely fulfill the life of righteousness that God asks of us. And so he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan. And you can go there. There are, different, there are a couple of different sites where people think, well, if you ever go to Israel, you'll see every, everything is something significant biblically happened there. And sometimes that can be proven and it's very clear that that's where it happened. And other times you're like, they just wanted to set up a gift shop here. <laughs> and so you can go to the Jordan River and if you want to spend a few dollars, they'll sell you a little vial that you can get a little bit of the water from the Jordan River, which is kind of cool, but you do understand, right, that that's not the same water that John the Baptist, like 2,000 years have come and water flows and evaporates and things, things change a little bit, but it's still kind of cool. It's, nothing, it's kind of a neat experience. Um, this is John the Baptist. This is who he is. He's a unique character. He's a very interesting person, and he has a very important role to play in the coming of the Messiah. He's sent to prepare the people, to let them know. But who is he? He's sent to prepare Angelus, the writer of this book. His goal is to show us who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, he's the Messiah, and that by believing in him, we can be saved and have eternal life. He's showing us his work. He's not just gonna give us the answer. He's gonna show us how he came to that conclusion. And so we expect every time there's a new witness on the witness stand for them to reveal important information about who Jesus is. And that's what we see here. We're gonna pick it up in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus. So this is after that questioning. They asked John, who are you? Now the next day, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We just sung about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, John the Baptist is going to tell us a few things about Jesus. First, he tells us he's the one who takes away the sin of the world. The one who takes away the sin of the world. This is a very significant imagery in the Jewish um, tradition and faith. Throughout the Old Testament, this idea of a sacrificial lamb is, is very important. It takes on a lot of significance at different times in Israel's history. Perhaps one of the most, not perhaps, without question, one of the most significant ideas that was attached to the idea of a sacrificial lamb is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb comes about when the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are sold into slavery to be slaves in Egypt. And so they serve for hundreds of years as slaves to the Egyptian people. And when God decides to raise up a deliverer to free them from slavery and to carry on the next phase of his plan for Israel, which is to take them out of Egypt into the promised land, which would be to the northeast of where Egypt is, to take them onto the promised land, modern-day Israel, sort of. The borders are different, but that same area. And when he decides it's time to do that, he raises up this guy named Moses. I'm sure you've heard of him. When he raises up Moses... He has to convince the Egyptian kingdom to let all of these slaves time. Now, that was a significant part of the Egyptian economy, obviously. And so there's no way they're going to let them go easily. And so God raises up Moses, and he, he carries out these ten plagues on the Egyptians. I mean, like, when God, when, when you're not, like, cooperating with God, and he wants to change your mind, he's got a lot of tools in his tool chest. <laughs> so there's these 10 plagues, and some of them are just downright awful, but none of them compare to the last and final plague. It's one of the most devastating things that we read about in the Bible, is that God actually is going to send an angel to kill the firstborn in every household in Egypt. It's terrible. But because God is doing this on, for a purpose and for a very specific reason, and that reason is to deliver his people, uh, Israel, from out of Egypt, he has a provision for the, the Israelite families, for the Hebrew families. That provision is that on the day before this is going to take place, it's going to take place overnight, and on the day before that, they are to offer what is, comes, comes to be known as the Passover lamb. They are to take a lamb... And with very specific instructions, sacrifice that lamb. Now, this is, this is not totally new. We remember uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After the very first sin, one of the first things that happens to begin to repair what they have done is that God himself kills an animal as provision for them. Now, he doesn't necessarily do that in the way that we see here, but he kills an animal to make clothing for them. And that sets a pattern that occurs all throughout the Bible that sin must be atoned, as Greg said earlier, through the sacrifice of blood. So they're to kill this Passover lamb, and then they are to take the blood of that lamb, and they're to paint it on the doorposts of their house. 
so that when the angel comes to kill the firstborn in every household, if, he, if the angel were to see the blood of, the, of that Passover lamb, that house would be saved. This is an incredible picture of salvation because a couple of thousand years later, there's gonna be this wild man who lives in the wilderness and eats bugs who says of Jesus of Nazareth, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they would instantly think back to that Passover ritual. But it's not just the Passover lamb. This is the Old Testament sacrificial law is riddled with this idea of sacrifice and blood uh, being the atonement for sin. In fact, the priests who served in the Old Testament temple were commanded to offer a sacrifice of two lambs every single day for the sins of the people. And so every morning at a specific time and then every evening at a specific time, they would, and, and imagine being one of those priests. Now, I understand there, there's a lot of people throughout human history have, have uh, come by food in this way, by sacrificing animals. But for most of us, we don't do a whole lot of that. And so it's very shocking, this idea to think that you would literally have to lay your hands on a living animal and with a knife take its life from it in order to atone for sin. And day in and day out, every morning and every evening, the priests would do this. What a vivid and effective reminder that sin always costs something. Sin never goes without a cost. It never goes without a penalty. So who is Jesus? Who does John the Baptist say he is? Let's start with that. That's what John says in his book. Let's start, you know, we had the first 18 verses, what we called the prologue, where John says, this is who I believe Jesus is. Now let me show my work. John the Baptist said, this is who Jesus is. The first thing John the Baptist says, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Let me just take a a quick minute to read Hebrews chapter 10 that kind of ties together the Old Testament passage means covenant. It's an agreement between they would sacrifice his people of how they are to relate to one another. And so the old agreement was that they would sacrifice animals for their sins. The New Testament, the new agreement, is that God would provide a lasting sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 explains this to us. I'm going to start in verse 1. This won't be on the screen. Just listen as I read. Since the law has, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifice, sacrifices that they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what Hebrews is saying so far, and I'm not done uh, with that passage, but what it's saying so far is that for years and hundreds of years, there was sacrifice after sacrifice. Why did they have to keep offering these sacrifices? It's because they kept sinning, because it, there was never a once and for all sacrifice. But the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us in verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, 
He's speaking of Jesus. After offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, verse 16, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So what John the Baptist is saying when he says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who've been sacrificed, who express the faith of the worshipers, and by that faith do put them into right relationship with God, but ultimately fail to be sufficient in taking away their sin. Therefore, they must be offered again and again and again forever. There's no end to these offering of sacrifices. But this Lamb of God, this one that has now come, he offers a sacrifice that is once and forever the sufficient sacrifice for everyone who will believe in him. And you think back to that that Passover lamb and they painted the doorpost with their blood The blood identified them as the ones who should be saved. And the blood of Jesus identifies us as the ones who have been saved by his sacrifice. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is Jesus? The one who takes away the sin of the world. Next. Let me me read this this verse and then I'll give you the point on the handout. The, The verse is this, verse 30. I'm back in John chapter 1 now. Verse 30, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Who is Jesus? He's the one who existed before John. Now, we've already made this point. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on this today because we've made this point before when we were in John's prologue and and then even last week as we were introducing this gospel to you that John the Baptist is born before Jesus. So, and he was conceived before Jesus. And so by everything we can tell, John existed before Jesus. So what is John saying when he says, this man existed before me? And he knows, like he's related to Jesus. So he knows the order of conception. He knows the order of birth. He knows that that. Jesus was not born before him nor conceived before him. He's making a statement about who he is. He existed not only before John, he existed before all of us. As in the beginning was the word. Who's Jesus? He's the one that existed before all of us. You should know that about him. He existed before the world was formed. In fact, he's the one who created this world. What are you telling us about Jesus, John? Well, let's let's keep letting that sink in a little bit. He's the one who existed before John. Then verse 32, it says, and John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. So who is Jesus? He's the one who the spirit rested on. John's, John the Baptist is referring to an event that's not recorded in the gospel of John. 
where I mentioned earlier where Jesus comes to John to be baptized. But what I didn't tell you, and you probably know this if you're familiar with the story, what I didn't tell you was that when, when John baptized Jesus, something happened that hadn't happened in all of his other baptisms. Like John was used to baptizing people. Like he's dunking them, bringing them back up. I don't know. I don't know if people cheered like we do today. Like we baptize people now. We're like, ah, you know. I don't know if they did that or not. Um, but he's bringing them up out of the water. They get out of the water. Somebody else comes down in the water. He's baptizing them. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but like John was used to like, here's what happens when I baptize people. They get wet. But when he baptizes Jesus, something crazy happens. He says, and many other witnesses who were there say, that the Spirit of God actually descended upon Jesus like a dove. He saw the Spirit of God come down on Jesus. And as if that's not enough, because you're like, maybe he's seeing things. Maybe. But if he was seeing things, he was hearing things too, because here's the other thing that happened that didn't happen with any of those other baptisms he did. They heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. I mean, like John probably knew there was something about Jesus. We don't know everything that John knew about Jesus. We certainly know that John had a lot more sort of doubting whether or not Jesus is who he thought he was. And he's, he's just, I don't know if he's having a, a, a crisis of faith or, or what. We'll, we'll get to talk about that later. But he saw the Spirit descend. He heard a voice from heaven. We talked about a couple of weeks ago that God is triune, that he exists. He's one God that exists in the form of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is Father, Son, and Spirit all in this same event. You've got the Son being baptized. You've got the Spirit coming on him like a dove. And then you have the Father letting his voice be heard from heaven. That's my Son. It's incredible. Now, like, we've heard this story, so we don't stop and think about it. But, like, if this happened to you like it happened to John, that's going to, like, leave an impression on you. You're going to remember this. And so when he says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him, he's saying something that, like, woke him up and shook him and made an impact on his life. He's the one who the Spirit rested on. What's also significant about this is that Jesus, from that moment on, does his earthly ministry not as some, like, God that has come down. Like, we think of, like, um, I don't know, uh, like Marvel characters or something who have these, like, superpowers and stuff. Jesus' superpower was that he was a spirit-filled man. That's Jesus' superpower. And so a lot, of, a lot of theologians believe that all of the miracles and that Jesus did weren't be necessarily because Jesus is also the Son of God, but that they were the result of the Spirit of God indwelling man, which is exactly what happens to every New Testament believer. And so that's not to say that we're necessarily going to do the things that Jesus does, but there's reason to believe that what Jesus does, he does not out of his his deity or his God nature, but out of his human nature with an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, 
What else does John the Baptist want us to know about Jesus? Who is Jesus? He says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, pises with the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who existed before John and by implication the rest of us as well. He's the one who the Spirit rested on, but he's also the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John, even John himself cannot baptize people with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes people with water to prepare them for this one who's coming. Jesus is the one, in other words, Jesus is the one who can give the Holy Spirit. What kind of person can give the Holy Spirit? These are the questions John wants us to be asking ourselves as he shows his work. Okay, I can tell you the answer. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who by believing in him, you can have eternal life. But let me show you my work. Here's the steps. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's significant. Not just anybody can do that. He existed before John and the rest of us. That's pretty significant. Like, I don't know anybody else that can claim that. He's the one whom the Spirit rested on. First time we've seen this, like the, the dove and wow. And he's also the one who can give the Holy Spirit. Who can give the Holy Spirit? What kind of person is this? Like the Holy Spirit doesn't obey man. These are the questions, right? These, you can see where this is going. We're supposed to be thinking as this happens. We know the answer, but just put yourself in their position. If you were finding all of this out for the first time, if you had no idea that Jesus was the Son of God, and John was like, well, let me describe Jesus to you. As he's describing Jesus, you're like, wait a minute. This is not an ordinary person. These are very important things that he's telling us. When he says that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, it's important to note that there's implications in this that Jesus comes to complete our salvation. He, what John begins by calling people to repentance and the preparation of their hearts, Jesus completes by sending the Holy Spirit to actually indwell believe. completion of the idea of salvation. And testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. The son, uh, stepson of an ordinary carpenter, yeah. The one whose brothers and sisters are among us, yes. But more than that, more than that, he takes away the sins of the world. He existed before me. I saw the Spirit come down on him. He actually is going to baptize some of you with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. Who else could he be? That's what he wants us to see. Who else could he be? Who else could do these things? What he's saying is the triune God is right here. He's come to us. The Messiah, the one who came to save us, the one who is from God, the one who is God. Jesus is here. That's his testimony. Now John the evangelist is going to tell us the testimony of several more people before we get to the end of this gospel. But it starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist doesn't get a whole lot of attention 
uh, in the rest of the New Testament. He comes up again in a couple of chapters, and we're going to talk about uh, him in chapter 3 when he comes up again because something really cool happens between John and Jesus in chapter 3. But he doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But make no mistake, to the people that John the evangelist, the gospel writer, are writing to, this guy was a big deal. Like, they knew of him. They were aware of his ministry. They were aware of the reverence that people had for him. He got Israel's attention. And the reason he got their attention was to say, there he is, Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. The one that the Holy Spirit came down upon, the Son of God. All right, so I tried to answer a couple of questions. Here we go along, because baptism is an important thing in the church still today, and so I at least wanted to introduce you to that concept of baptism as a sign of repentance and a heart change, uh, and the start of, let's say, a new relationship is... is the way I think it'll get explained in the rest of the New Testament. Um, so who, who is John? Why does he baptize? And then ultimately the subject of his entire gospel, who's Jesus? This is who he is. He's the son of God. Let me end with this challenge, and you'll see this on your handout. John lived his life to point people to Jesus. Will you do the same? What are you willing to do with your life that will help point people to Jesus? John's a pretty radical example. I mean, the camel hair and the bugs, and I don't even know if that would work today. <laughs> like, I don't some, Somebody try it just so we have a story to tell, but like, I don't think that'll work. But more often than, than through these really radical uh, means, God uses just ordinary people living ordinary lives who are fully devoted to and committed to following him to point people to his son. And that means that you and I have an opportunity to join in the work that John the Baptist began 2,000 years ago of getting the world's attention and whatever, by whatever means God gives us and saying, you need to look at Jesus, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. Will you do that? Will you seriously devote and commit the rest of your life to making that the most important thing that you do? I wholeheartedly believe that's what, what God calls every believer to prioritize among, uh, among everything else, above everything else, to point people to Jesus, to let the world know Listen, I've said this before. I love this uh, old saying, just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you have kids, you're going to take them to be involved in, in sports and you're going to run them all over the place and you're going to hopefully get them off to college or whatever's next for them and you're going to see them get married and you're going to raise grandkids and you're going to go to work every day and you're going to go on vacations and you're going to try to save up a little money for later. You're going to do a lot of things with the rest of your life. There aren't, there aren't too many things that we get to do that will last for eternity. But if we make it the aim of our lives that in everything that we do, we're going to take our kids to soccer in a way that points people to Jesus. 
And I'm not just talking about cheesy Jesus bumper stickers. <laughs> that's probably, that's, that might be like the equivalent of like camel's hair and eating locusts today, right? <laughs> but if it works, it works, great. But like, you're gonna like look around you and say, there's probably some people here that need to know Jesus. Why don't I build relationship with them and see if there's a way that I can help point them to Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just talking about ordinary, like do the stuff you're already gonna do, but do it in a way that points people to Jesus. And then if there are times when, when God calls you specifically to do something different than what you would normally do, then you obey that too. But that should be, that, that's the challenge that I want to leave us with, that John, he gave his life to this. Don't miss that in his story. That every day he got up and he lived his life differently because he knew he had this mission. He had this eternal purpose to point people to Jesus. And we're called to do the same thing. So I want to invite the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us in some worship. While, while they get set up, let's just close our eyes, prepare our own hearts for prayer here. With your eyes closed, I just want you to consider what are some ways you can point people to Jesus this week? And are there some specific people that God might be laying on your heart for that reason? It doesn't take me long to, for names to come to the front of my mind. Where I say, God, help me point them to you. Because I, I really want them to know you. I want, I want them to know the Jesus that John pointed people to. And let's just take a minute before we get back into worship. And let's just ask him to help us in that. Jesus, would you help us point people to you? Uh, maybe just through the the way we live our lives this week and in the weeks to come, to be mindful of, of the opportunities all around us every day, to let, let people see into this window of the gospel that Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Son of God, that he was Jesus of the universe before the world even existed. And that out of love... And out of mercy and compassion, he came into this world to seek and to save those who are lost, just like me and just like the rest of us are born into this world. God, help us not to live lives that when we get to the end, we look back and say, I don't know how much of that really mattered. but help us to live lives that when we, when we cross that finish line and stand before you, there will be people who walked on this earth with us who will say, I saw Jesus because of you. Spirit, well up within us this week and cause us to live lives like that. In Jesus' name we ask for it. Amen.